Thanks, Adam and Heather, for that. Uh, that was a great worship time. Um, and I just, man, I just miss you guys when we don't meet. And uh, I, uh, it's just such a privilege uh, to be a part of this body and to get to know you and to love you and to serve you. And, and uh, thank you for being here. And uh, let's see what God has to say to us from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. There's, there's a vast and almost always intimidating chasm between knowing and doing, between believing and acting, between the theoretical and the applied. I dare say we all purport to believe many things that we have never yet acted upon. may not be true in your life. I think it's true in my life. I've never forgotten what R.C. Sproul said about this regarding Christians. He said something to the effect that most who profess to be Christians are merely theoretical theists and practical atheists in how they live their lives. I think Sproul is right. I've been in Christian ministry, both lay and vocational, for 25 years, and I've met far more theoretical theists than I've met uh, applied theists or practical theists. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think it's at least partially true in every one of our lives. Every single one of us in this room. Are we all still uncovering and dealing with things in our lives that we've not submitted to God? Aren't we all still dealing with those things, uncovering those things, finding those things in our life? Knowing what Christ has called us to do, knowing what, how Christ has called us to live, and yet still surrendering to this predisposition to go with the world, to, to think like the world, to conform to the world. I think we all fight that if we're honest with ourselves. So you know what the word epiphany means. I've shared it with you many times. It's a great word. Uh, Anybody know what it means? The word, English word epiphany, it means a comprehension or perception of reality by means of a sudden intuitive realization. Uh, any of you ever had an epiphany? Ever had a Holy Spirit epiphany? I love those. Those are the best kind, right? A Holy Spirit epiphany. I'll share a short story with you, personal story. Uh, it was uh, in the late fall of the year 2000. It was my last semester of seminary. Karen and I were entertaining the prospect of coming to Milan to pastor uh, a church on a voluntary basis. There was really no guarantee of income. It was actually this church. And uh, I was standing. I just, I just finished my, my, my job. It was a Friday afternoon. I loved Fridays when I was in seminary because I would always treat myself. You know, my classes were over. My two part-time jobs were over, and I'd go to Wendy's and get a double cheeseburger and a Dr. Pepper. And it was like, wow, it was awesome, you know. So I'd always treat myself. It was a Friday afternoon. I can remember standing on that street corner, and I was thinking, is it wise for Karen and I to go to Milan with no, no promise of an income? Is that a wise thing to do? Is that prudent to do? Should I do that? Should I take my wife over there like that? And so I was, this was weighing on my mind. And I'm standing there at the corner and I'm waiting for the, the crosswalk sign to turn green, right? And I had one of those epiphanies. And I thought to myself, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> if God is who He says He is, why would I 
not go. And if God is who I say He is, why would I not obey Him with glad, reckless joy? It was just one of those beautiful moments with the Lord. He just, he just came down and just landed on me like a sumo wrestler. And by the time I got to the other side of the street, I knew we were coming to Milan. Friends, our God is God. Amen? And we should be living that fearlessly. We don't have to conform to the world. We should be living our theology and our Christianity fearlessly. It was one of those full-blown theological epiphanies. I love it when that happens. I mean, okay, I was about to graduate with a Master's of Divinity. That's 90 hours of theological study. I knew a ton about God. I could tell you a whole lot about God. I believed a lot about God. But standing on that street corner, God said, I want you to act on it. I want you to act on what you believe to be true about me. God challenged me to believe that He's a reigning, sovereign, almighty, and faithful God. Ultimately, if you don't act on it, you don't really believe it. Anybody, would anybody agree with that statement? If you don't act on what you say you believe, you don't really believe it. It's merely theoretical. It's merely theoretical. If you don't do it, it's because you really don't believe it. I've told you this many, many times. I say this to you all the time, but I think it's a powerful, powerful, powerful little phrase. Bad theology hurts people. Bad theology, bad theology leads to wrong believing, which always leads to what? Wrong living. Bad theology hurts people. Karen and I are in Milan because of good theology. Applied theology. Let me ask you, just, I'll just stop right now and ask you, Christian friend, where in your life is God challenging you to apply His Word and to live it huge, to live it large, to live it fearlessly with glad, reckless joy. That's what a real Christian looks like. I'm not saying we don't all struggle. But that's what God is calling His children to. So knowing our Bible, uh, is, uh, knowing our biblical theology is essential. You cannot act upon that of which you are ignorant. So it's incumbent that we know our Bibles. And good theology leads to good believing, which leads to good living, right? Leads to good living. But that implies that we, that implies that we actually apply what we say we believe. We take what we say we believe and we put it into practice every day when we go to work, every day in our families with our wives and, and husbands and our children, every day at school, we put our good theology to work. It's applied in our lives. I just want to say to you, many of you could share uh, testimonies to this effect, but it is inexpressibly sweet. There's a sweetness to life and a freedom to life when you will act on what you know to be true about God. Because we've said it many, many times in this church. We say it always over and over and over. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll what? 
You'll keep my commandments and I will come to you and disclose myself to you. Friends, if you want more of God, obey. Jesus says, I will come to you. Knowing Him and applying what we know to be true about Him, it is license. It is license to live a large, uncareful, exciting, joyous, rewarding, satisfying life. Because God is who He is. It's license. We don't have to live small. We don't have to live afraid. We don't have to. And I think this is something James is saying to us as he, as he keeps talking to us. He's really talking to us about applied theology. Applied theology. Every chapter is it's applied theology. Go do this! Is what James is saying to us. A life of applied theology. So we're not to be theoretical theists merely hearing and talking good theology. We are to be we are to incarnate our theology. So, as we finish the last few verses here of James chapter 4, in my mind, James is continuing to build upon what he said over in James chapter 3, verse 17, about living in accordance with the wisdom that comes down from above. And also in conjunction with that, I'm convinced that James is continuing to develop the thought that he brought... Uh, uh, to us in James 4, chapter 6, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So James is still talking to us about God-pleasing humility. And we saw that fleshed out. Verse 7, we're to submit to God. Verse 8, we're to draw near to God. Verse 8 and 9, we're to repent of our sin. Verse 10, we're to humble ourselves before the Lord. Verse 11, we saw last time we were together, we're to use our tongue to edify and not to slander. And verse 12, we're to acknowledge God's authority in our lives as the sovereign judge. And in our text tonight, James reminds us that God-pleasing humility involves a right view of God and a right view of ourselves. Good theology will inform good anthropology, if I might say it that way. If we're seeing God correctly, we will see ourselves correctly. If we do not see God correctly, we are clueless about how to live this life and about who we really are. About who we really are. And as I said to you two weeks ago, and God's just going to drive it home. He's going to drive it home to us tonight. He's God. Oh, and you're not. And God expects us to, to understand that and God expects us to live like we understand that. We're not little sovereigns, right? We're submitted to the great sovereign. God expects His people to understand it. God expects His people to live it. And James is going to bring that point home to us tonight. Verse 13, James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. So, what's wrong with the planning and talking that's going on in uh, verse 13? Is it wrong to plan? Is it uh, wrong to talk about our plans? Of course not. Any businessman, and James uses the, the example of a businessman, any businessman worth his salt is going to plan, right? The issue is not the planning. The issue is the attitude. 
And the issue is not uh, what is said, it's what is not said. And it's how most of humanity prosecutes their lives. They think they're little gods. Is that not true? And they live uh, completely oblivious to their Creator. They give no no ear or no heed to their Creator. They don't care what their Creator says. They're just going to live their life just like they want to. Like they're little sovereigns. As if God were non-existent or inconsequential. I want to say to you, friends, if you live your life like that in a practical sense, there's a profound arrogance in that and a deep foolishness also to live as if God were non-existent or inconsequential. Of course, the unbelievers live like that. We understand that. But what is shocking to me is that many Christians actually live like this. You know, uh, go to church on Sunday and, and nod and agree. And yes, I agree with the Bible. But then actually go out into the world and never submit any of their decision-making to God. Never ask God's uh, opinion about anything. Just unilaterally making decisions. Not, not submitting any parts of their life to the Lord. It's practical atheism. And I've seen it so much. So much. Growing up as a Christian, as a young man, I've seen it so much. This practical atheism. And I think it's epidemic in the modern church. This practical atheism. Effectively, once we leave church taking no thought of God, what He says, what He wants, what He commands, what He's called me to do as a Christian, it's practical atheism. Practical atheism. And I think James is exhorting us about that. James is exhorting us about that to be sure that we submit all of our life, all of our plans to the Lord. I couldn't help but think when I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of that guy over in Luke chapter 12. You can turn with me if you want. I'm just going to read uh, over Luke chapter 12 very briefly there, verse 16 to 21. You guys remember this story, I'm sure. that Jesus Christ is telling this parable. Verse 16 of Luke chapter 12. And He says, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. Now as I read this, I want you to, I want you to try to pick up all the, this orgy of personal pronouns here. Now, God's nowhere to be seen in this, guy's, in this guy's thinking, right? It's like it's all about him. Christian, you shouldn't be thinking like that. Your thought pattern shouldn't be like that. Your thought pattern shouldn't be like this. Listen to this man. Verse 17, And he began to reason to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's a, here's a man who's taken all of his income and wealth and, he, and he's going to hoard it up and it's all for him. Friends, that's not how Christians live. That's not how we're called to live. If you go on and you study Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, 
sell your possessions and give to the poor. And build for yourselves treasures in heaven. Christianity is a radical call. It always has been. It always has been a radical call. But this guy thinks it's all about him. He thinks this grain is his. Wrong! It's not his. What does the Bible say? The earth and all it contains belongs to the Lord. Right? And this guy thinks that he has many years to live. Wrong! What does the Bible say? The Bible says, Psalm 139, I think, that, that our days are ordained while we're still in the womb. God is sovereign over our lives. We are not. God owns everything on the earth. Anything that you think you might own is on loan. It's His. It's His. We're not little sovereigns trying to build little kingdoms here. <laughs> we're pilgrims, and we're supposed to be headed for the celestial city. We're not supposed to be hoarding up stuff. We're supposed to be... The things that God gives us, we're supposed to be using for His glory and for the edification of the church, for the spread of the gospel, for the glory of Jesus as we pass quickly through this life. Bad theology leads to wrong believing and that leads to wrong living. We see that in this man's life. If you, Christian friend, if you are making plans without taking God into account, you are not practicing. I'm saying any decision. You are not practicing God-pleasing humility. In fact, you are practicing practical atheism. Practical atheism. Verse 14, just that first thought there. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Again, James is not saying that it's wrong to plan. He's saying human plans are always made in what? They're always made in ignorance. He says you don't have a clue what tomorrow's going to bring. Just like that guy in Luke chapter 12. He was hoarding it up, man. I'm going to build a lot of barns. And I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. Wrong! You're not a sovereign. God is sovereign. God holds your days in His hand. And God expects, listen, God expects us to think like that and to plan like that and to, and we're going to make a lot of this as I finish this sermon, to speak like that. It's supposed to be in our words. And you're going to see James make that point very dramatically as we continue on. We are, ob we are not omniscient creatures. That means, omniscience means all-knowing. We are not all-knowing creatures. In fact, we, don't know, we have no clue what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't even know if we're going to be here tomorrow. We don't even know if our heart's going to beat one more time. Right? God knows. Oh, God's God. And what? You're not? Amen? God's God and you're not. And guess what? He expects you to plan on that. He expects you to make your plans based on that biblical truth. And expects you to speak it. He expects you to acknowledge His sovereignty and His Godhood in your life. And we'll see that in a few more minutes. The Bible tells us that God, listen to this, knows the word before it's on our tongue, Psalm 139. He knows the thought that comes into our mind, Ezekiel 11. He knows what is in the darkness, uh, Daniel chapter 2. He knows all things are open and laid bare before His eyes, uh, Hebrews 4. He has infinite knowledge Psalm 147. I love how A.W. Pink summarizes the, the omniscience of God in the Bible. Listen to what Pink says. God knows everything. Everything actual, everything possible. All events and all creatures of the past, present, and future, God knows. Contrary to the modern heresy called open theism. If you need to know more about open theism, 
Talk to my esteemed colleague. He wrote a paper on it, right? All right. He knows about it. Got an A. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said it perfectly. C.S. Lewis said it perfectly. Everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. It's one thing James is saying to us. But you and I are clueless. You know, it seems like if we would own that, it would engender some sense of humility. It would engender some, some sense of us understanding our own vulnerability, our own transient nature, um, our own creatureliness. The Bible teaches, Acts 17.28, that we are wholly dependent upon our Creator. I love this verse. You guys know this verse? In Him we live and we move and we have our being. Acts 17.28. Some English translations render it like this. In Him we exist. Another, uh, a little translation of the Greek is, In Him we are. We only exist as an extension of His being. All of creation is simply an extension of His being. I love how John Gerstner talks about this. He, in effect, says, God is consciously sustaining you every nanosecond of your life. Did you know that? I think some people think, well, God just winds us up and He just sends us off. No, if we understand the Bible, if we understand Acts 17, 28 correctly, God is consciously holding you and sustaining you every moment of your life. Every moment of your life, Jehovah God is, is holding Jim Albright and sustaining Jim Albright. I have no being outside of Him. I have no existence outside of Him. Friends, that's, that's theology should, that should really make us humble. In Him we live and move and have our being. Look at the second thought there in verse 14. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now God's going to give proud, haughty, arrogant man an object lesson in humility here. He says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while. The ESV actually says, you are a mist. One paraphrase says, you are like a puff of smoke. Another paraphrase says, you are like a wisp of fog. Are you hearing what God says? <laughs> are, you, are you prosecuting your life like a little sovereign? Friends, that's very... Not only is that arrogant, it's foolish. It's, it's not only arrogant, it's foolish. God says this to us so many times in the Bible. It's like He wants to make sure we get this and we understand this. And more importantly, that we live this. We are vapors upon the earth. Live like it. Stop conforming to the world. You're a pilgrim. You're passing through. Mike, he, he's calling his sons and his daughters to live like this is true. The Bible says, Psalm 103.15, human life is like grass. Psalm 78.39, it's like a breeze. Ecclesiastes 6.12, it's like a shadow. Psalm 39.6, it's like a phantom. Psalm 39.11, it's like a breath. Job 14.2, it's like a flower. That withers. God means for that truth to impact the way you live when you wake up in the morning. You're a vapor upon the earth. That, should be, that needs to be calculated into your plans. We are vapors upon the earth. Not to take that into account, 
that we are so temporal and fragile and vulnerable is just arrogance. It's just arrogance before the eternal God. So James is exhorting us not only to know our theology, but to live our theology. And as we go on to speak, to speak our theology, to live and talk like you know and acknowledge and understand that God is God, and to live and talk and, and, and know and acknowledge that you're not God. You are a wholly dependent creature upon the Creator every nanosecond of your life. This is the truth that God is communicating to us. And that will engender God-pleasing humility if we're understanding that, I think. To live good theology is to, to live the fact that He's awesome and reigning and sovereign. And to live good anthropology is to live the fact that we are but a puff of smoke. Look at verse 15 and 16. Instead, you ought to say, hear it, this is, God, God doesn't only expects us to live it, He expects us to speak it. Listen to what He says. Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You ought to not only acknowledge that He's the sovereign God, you should speak that He's the sovereign God. I love what uh, Piper says about this. We are to have a true view of God in our minds and in our mouths. I think that's one of the things that James is clearly saying to us. Piper continues, you, were just, you weren't just created to go places and do things. You were created to go places and do things with thoughts and attitudes and words that reflect a right view of God and a right view of yourself. I love that quote. Sons and daughters of God are supposed to believe, think, plan, act, and talk like He's the King of Kings. And we are merely His sons and daughters. His servants. Our speech is to give expression to our good theology, acknowledging God's omnipotence and our own impotence. This is one thing that James is driving home here. This is God-pleasing humility. We acknowledge His omnipotence and we own our own impotence. The way we speak matters to God. It matters to God in this regard. We're not only to have a right view of God in our minds, we're supposed to have a right view of God in our mouths, in our marriages, before our spouses. They need to be hearing God's sovereign. And I submit myself to Him. In our homes, with our children, our children need to be hearing God's sovereign. And we submit our whole family. We submit our whole family to Him. In our jobs, our co-workers are supposed to be hearing that my God is the living God. He's sovereign. And I submit all my plans to Him. It's supposed to be coming off our tongue. In our neighborhoods, our friends are supposed to be hearing that my God is sovereign. And I submit all my plans to my God. It matters to God how we talk about the future. Because we don't know anything about it. And He holds it in His hand. He expects us to live like that and He expects us to speak like that. And James is driving this point home. When I, when I was thinking about these things, uh, 
Paul's words over in 2 Corinthians 2 came to my mind. He says, we are to be a sweet aroma of Christ in every place. You're, you know, you're supposed to be, God's sovereignty is supposed to be all over you, man. People are supposed to be smelling God's sovereignty all, all over you. Hearing it off your tongue and seeing it in your life. And one of the core pieces of good theology is the fact that God is sovereign. So what does that mean? That's one of the things that James is talking about here in verse 15. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do that or this. Because here's the, here's the, the, the message, beloved. If God does not will, it will not happen. Amen? He says, you ought to say, if God wills. What does it mean that God is sovereign? It simply means that the God of the Bible is not only God in name, He's God in deed. He's not only God in name, but God in deed. He is no pretender. He is no wannabe. He is the immortal, invisible God. To speak of His sovereignty is just to, to speak of His godness. To speak of His godness. He is supreme in power and authority. There is no one beside Him. He has no colleague. He has no peer. Jehovah God is ultimately sovereign. There is not one rogue molecule in all the universe that is not subject to His authority and His power. Not one molecule. That's what sovereignty... That's what sovereignty means. Before Him, <laughs> angels and devils and demons, and presidents, and popes, and kings, and all other men are like grasshoppers, according to the prophet Isaiah. And I'm just going to give you a, a little survey here on sovereignty from the Word of God, okay? David said it great, First Chronicles 29, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Thine is the dominion, O Lord, and Thou dost exalt Thyself as head over all and dost rule over all. He's the great sovereign God. Jehoshaphat said it awesome too. Second Chronicles 20, O Lord, Thou art God in heaven. Thou art ruler over all kingdoms and nations. Power and might are in Thy right hand so that no one can stand against Thee. You remember that great testimony of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? For God's dominion is everlasting dominion. He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can stay His hand. Job said it well. Whatever God's soul desires, He does. Job 23. Job 42. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. The psalmist says it well in Psalm 115. Our God is in the heaven. In the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. I, lo I love to talk about God's sovereignty like this. I, just, I love these verses. And then I'm going to give you some selected verses from Isaiah. Some of you that have been around for a while, you've heard me go through this litany before, but I just absolutely love this. God says He's God and you're not. Listen to what He says. To whom then will you liken me that I should be His equal? I am God and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? I am the Lord. And there is no other besides me. There is no God. I am God and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. 
Our God is God. He's the sovereign God. Amen? Our God is the sovereign God. He commands, He speaks, and galaxies stand forth. He divides seas. He calms storms. He commands the sun to stand still. He calls dead men uh, out of tombs. He, he, he uses ravens to feed His prophet. He makes fire not consume His, his children. Everything in the cosmos stands at attention when God speaks. He is the sovereign God. And although most men chafe at this truth, as Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he wishes. Divine sovereignty means that God is on His throne of the universe, and He's working all things after the counsel of His will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And it's an awesome thing that the Bible says. All these, the, this Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 passage, it says He's working all things. These all things include from the rolling of dice to the falling of a sparrow to your life and your death and to the crucifixion of the Son. God is sovereign in every single thing. Paul said, for from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Romans 11.36 Beloved, our Father God is not called King of Kings for nothing. And as I thought about these truths, I thought, uh, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit will convict us a little bit tonight, but as I thought about these truths, shame on If we say we believe these things and we don't live like it. Shame on us if we don't live our Christianity huge. Shame on us if we don't live it huge. Shame on us if, if the aroma of an awesome, sovereign God is not all over us. And those around us are not smelling it and seeing it and hearing it. You know, walking like we really believe what we say we believe to be true about our God. He's an almighty sovereign God. An almighty sovereign God. You know that famous, uh, that famous Latin phrase, carpe diem, right? What does it mean? Does anybody know what carpe diem means? Seize the day. Seize the day. Um, well, uh, James is exhorting us to carpe vapor, to seize the vapor. I actually looked at the, the Latin. That is the actual Latin. Vapor is a, is a Latin word. Carpe vapor. Seize your vapor. This whole sermon's about vapor utilization. So, how are you utilizing your vapor? How are you utilizing your, one, your few moments upon the earth? How are you utilizing those? Are you honoring Christ? Are you making Jesus famous? Are you making Jesus uh, known in, in your home and uh, in your job, in your school, where you work, in your neighborhood? God is calling us to radical and extravagant vapor utilization. James says to omit God from our plans and from our speech about our plans is in effect to boast. And he says that's evil. Right there in verse 16, that's evil. Ver quickly, verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Therefore, 
do not sin in this, he says. Have a right view of God, a right view of yourself. Speak properly about it. Have, have this view in your mind and in your words. Uh, submit all aspects of your plans in your life to the sovereign will of God. And acknowledge that in your speech. God-pleasing humility is manifest in our submission to His sovereign will and in acknowledgement of that in our speech. So I have, I have three invitations tonight. One to, to the lost person who's here who, who doesn't have a clue about Jesus and doesn't know Him. Uh, I just invite you to come and receive Christ tonight. Uh, if you don't know what that means, come talk to me. I'll be happy to talk to you about that. Uh, second comment I want to make is to the merely religious, those who have made some kind of profession of faith in Christ at some point in their lives, but have never truly submitted or surrendered their life to the sovereign will of Jesus. Practical atheism. I want to invite you tonight to repent and to truly come to Christ and to truly become a disciple to truly follow Him and obey Him in all that He commands. And lastly, for you, Christian, that's here tonight, some of us just simply need to receive the Holy Spirit epiphany. Some of us simply need to have a sudden, intuitive realization. My God's God, and I'm going to live like it. I'm really going to live like it. In every sphere of my life, I'm going to live like He's a sovereign God like He's almighty, like He's faithful, like He's good, like He can be trusted. I'm really going to live it. I'm really going to live it. So, I exhort you to live your good theology. Live it huge. You have license, Christian friends. You have license. And if you don't exercise that license, no one's responsible but you. You have license to, to live an uncareful life, a huge life, a life that honors and glorifies the Lord Jesus. You don't have to live small anymore. No more practical atheism. Live a life worthy of your redemption. Live a life worthy of your redemption. Like He's a sovereign God. An awesome God. And let it come off your tongue. Let it be coming off your tongue. This pleases the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us where we've uh, not made You Lord in our lives. Forgive us where we've held this corner or that corner or that area or this place off to itself and we've not allowed You to, to be in that part of our lives. We've not surrendered that to You. Forgive us, Father, if we've been guilty of that. I pray that if we have been guilty of that, tonight we will leave here uh, convinced that we need to repent that we need to bring all areas of our life into submission to You, Your great sovereignty, submitting our will to Your great, all-knowing, all-wise, all-compassionate will. Lord, thank You for these awesome truths. You give us license. We have license. 
We don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to live like the world anymore. Our God is God. And He does whatever He pleases. He accomplishes all His good pleasure. And we know, Father, that that includes us as Your sons and daughters. Oh Lord, may we act upon these truths. May we act upon them. And as Adam prayed, Lord, may we be a church, a church known uh, for, for the fact that we worship a mighty God, a sovereign God. We live, we live fearless lives. Just going with Jesus. Glad, reckless, joy, obedience. Oh God, thank You for this great exhortation. We praise You, Lord Jesus, in Your name. Amen.